Hello and welcome to Poetry in Aldborough's 2021 podcast series. Rory Waterman Talks to Wendy Cope was recorded on Sunday the 7th of November during our online festival via Zoom. We hope you enjoy it. Over to our host, Susanna Hart. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to have you all here at this very exciting event. I'm very, we're very privileged to have Rory Waterman, the academic and critic and poet, talking to one of the UK's most prolific and most popular well-loved poets, Wendy Cope. Rory's recently published a unique new academic study into Wendy's life and work, and that's going to be the basis for their discussion. Wendy's also going to be reading a few poems for us. Just a few housekeeping notes before I pass over to... Um, to Rory, who's going to then take kick off the discussion with Wendy. Um, we're all familiar with Zoom by now, but please do keep yourself muted so that we can, um, you know, there isn't any unwanted interference. Also, if you want, you can, if you switch the speaker view for the discussion and maybe pin both of the speakers side by side, you'll be able to see the interchange between Rory and Wendy more easily. So just a brief introduction for our two um, distinguished speakers today. Rory Waterman's Associate Professor of Modern and Contemporary Literature at Nottingham Trent University. His most recent book is Wendy Cope, published by the Liverpool University Press this year. It's the first monograph on Wendy's work. His own full-length poetry collections are all published by Carcanet, and they are Tonight the Summer's Over, 2013, which was a Poetry Book Society recommendation, shortlisted for the Seamus Heaney Award, Sarajevo Roses in 2017, shortlisted for the Ledbury Forte Prize for Second Collections, and Sweet Nothings 2020. Rory is also a critic for the TLS, PN Review and other publications, and he co-edits the Pamphlet Press New Walk Editions. Wendy probably needs no introduction, but after reading history at university, she worked as a primary school teacher in London for 15 years. Her first book of poems, Making Cocoa for Kingsley Amos, was a great success and she's been freelance since then. Her most recent collection is Anecdotal Evidence, published in 2018. She's also written for children and edited several anthologies. A collection of her prose pieces, Life, Love and the Archers, appeared in 2015. Her work has won awards on both sides of the Atlantic, and in 2010, she was appointed OBE for Services to Literature. So without any more ado, I'm going to hand over to Rory and Wendy. Rory. Hello. Um, I hope everyone can hear me. Um... I assume they can. Is that correct? Please nod, Susanna, if you can. I can. Oh, good. Okay, very good. Well, I'm audible then. Um, I, I'll begin by saying I, I don't really understand cricket, but there's a famous anecdote about WG Grace being bowled out for a duck. And legend has it that he, he looked up slowly as the wicket sort of dinked behind him. And he said, people have come to see me bat, not you bowl. And, and I feel a bit like that bowler um, through no fault of Wendy's. People have come to hear her talk and read, not me. So I'll keep this brief. Um, hopefully some of you in the audience have questions for Wendy or perhaps a bit less likely for me. And toward the end of, towards the end of the event, we'll get to those. So if you'd like to ask one, please type it in the, in the chat, hover over your screen and click the chat and type it there. Um, uh, and, and you can post questions at any time during the event, but I'll come to them later on in it. Um, I've been asked to open the event with some comments on my book. Uh, here it is. And, um, and, and then we'll move on to questions, a reading from Wendy and more questions. So, so let's go. I won't jabber on forever. 
I've admired Wendy Cope's poetry since I first started to sit cross-legged on the floor of the little poetry section in Ottica's bookshop in Lincoln, using it like a public library, if I'm honest, when I was about 16. And she only had two full-length collections then, not counting the long poem, The River Girl. Um, and uh, um, now she has five. And when the fifth anecdotal evidence was published about three years ago, 2018, and uh, the gangly teenage me had become the balding chimp that you see before you tonight, um, I was sent it to review by the TLS and, and I liked it very, very much. And, and the way it departed from, and in some senses built upon her fourth collection, Family Values. Again, it's quite a personal book in many ways. It's moving and forthright. And of course, in places it's very and purposely funny and then I started thinking why on earth has nobody written a book about about her poetry plenty of superb critics have written about her with admiration and passion uh, Louise Tondur, Michael Schmidt, Julie Kane, Atta Hadari, William Logan, Istvan Rax, Jerry Cambridge, Rebecca Watts, Stephen Regan, Mike Oakley, uh, Nicola Thompson, Anthony Thwaite and, and so on but most of these critics are critics, they're not academics, and the vast majority of academics who might have written about her poetry, surely at some point, have just ignored it instead. And I think partly the reason is that many literary academics are snobs of a kind, and snob popularity is a matter of course, and she certainly is very popular, wildly so, for a poet. Her first two collections alone have sold something like half a million copies together, um, anyway, I decided to try to write that book and I wanted it to be a book that made the very easy case for the immense critical value of her work. But I also wanted it to be a book for readers and not just academic readers, a book from one, one reader to others. I've written hundreds of reviews of living authors, but I've never written a book on one or even a chapter of a book on one. So I decided I'd better contact Wendy. We'd never previously been in touch and, and, and tell her what I was up to. And besides, I wanted to ask her some questions. I'm not the sort of critic who wants to assume the author is figuratively dead. And in my experience, some poets prefer not to come under critical scrutiny. And I felt some trepidation, uh, you know, never meet your idols and all that stuff. And I shouldn't have worried. She's she was a wonderful support. She invited me into her home to pour through her recent drafts and ephemera. She answered my many, probably quite annoying sometimes questions about points of fact. And crucially, she didn't attempt to interfere with anything I wrote, which was essential to me. Um, she first knew what I had written when she read the published book and she made the writing of it even more pleasurable than I had expected. Uh, she's a fine poet, yes, but she's also a wonderful person. The book looks at all of Wendy's collections in sequence, picking up threads as it goes. It isn't a biography, but it has got a semi-biographical semi shape, I suppose, anyway. And then in the final chapters, I discuss her children's poems and finally her previously uncollected and in many cases unpublished poetry. That part of the book required significant archival digging, both at the British Library, which holds her archive uh, up until 2011 at least, and, and which was still being catalogued properly when I was looking at it. Um, archival research isn't for the faint of heart. Uh, and also in her personal archive at her house. 
I spent several afternoons rooting around in papers in her study and being brought cups of tea. And, and I think the chapter about the uncollected coat is the one I'm proudest of, really, because it offers a lot of insights behind the published work. It also reveals a lot of excellent poems that haven't been seen before, such as, such as a few Strognell sonnets that didn't make the cut for the sequence in her first collection. One of them is my new favourite of those poems, and you're probably not supposed to belly laugh in the hushed and august special collection reading room at the British Library, but I didn't have a choice. Um, without Wendy's approval, I wouldn't have been able to publish quotations from those poems at all and wouldn't have been able to discuss them in the book. And I hope you'll read the book. Of course I do. And I'll pop a link in the chat at some point for anyone who is interested. But now over to you, Wendy, and you personally. Uh, did you have any reservations about me, about me writing that book? You, you didn't seem to, but I probably would have done if someone I'd never heard of approached me, however flattering it might seem. Well, for one thing, I had heard of you, Rory. And for another thing, no, I didn't have any reservations at all. I was really pleased that somebody wanted to um, write a book about my work. Um, I sort of agreed with you that it was about time somebody did, actually, and I was very, <laughs> I was very pleased. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you, you were. I, I do mean every word. You were, you were a wonderful Thank help you. while Thank you I very did much. it. Um, I discovered a lot of poems in your, in your archive dating from the the mid to late seventies that, that I suppose bear no bear little resemblance to most of the poems in your subsequent debut collection, this one, Making Cocoa for Kingsley Amos. Yeah. Um, they're, they're sometimes quite witty, and I think of an unpublished poem in which you hope your mother doesn't find a copy of The Joy of Sex in the oven, which is yeah. a strange conceit, but anyway, but but most, uh, most of them are quite pithy, free verse nature lyrics and, and things like that. What what brought about the the change in your, I guess, predominant early style? Was, was there a poem or something you write, wrote or something someone said? I know you took part in a lot of workshops then or anything like that, that at least temporarily encouraged you to change your style or focus. Yeah, I was on an Arvon course taught by DM Thomas. And one evening, he, uh, um, a sort of fun activity, he told us all to write a Clarihue. And I wrote half a dozen. And he said, these are really good. You should give up that other stuff you're doing and, and, and write. You know, I mean, he, was, he wasn't this serious. He wasn't serious. But um, it sort of made me realise that um, that was something I could do. And I had always enjoyed reading comic verse. I mean, before I got seriously interested in poetry, I had some anthologies of comic verse that I used to enjoy. Um, so that then I started, um, you know, I stopped hiding my sense of humor. I think those early, those early poems that you're referring to, they, they were actually about taking myself seriously. That was quite an yeah. important phase um, that I was taking myself seriously. But then I got to this point where I realized I could let my sense of humor into my poems, which as Philip Howard once said, is always a risky enterprise for a poet. For sure, absolutely. But uh, I suppose in that book, most, most people do, do think maybe more more readily of the the humor the wit the sarcasm the the parody but but there's plenty that isn't like that as well of course in yeah. terms of the clarihues i um uh, <laughs> i remember actually a, a manila envelope in the archive which contained quite a few 
quite a few on it. I've always thought of the Clary Hugh as sort of like the poor relation to the Limerick, really. But um, but I do remember seeing, and maybe that was that. I didn't I hadn't connected those two things together. Do, do you remember any of them? Would you give us one? Do you remember? I can't. Bit... I can't remember any. <laughs> of, of, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I I did I did assume not, but I just wondered. Um, a lot of people did first encounter you through your parodies, I suppose, and and yeah. your your parodic poet character Jake or sometimes Jason Strugnell. I, I mean, I didn't because I was about two when you started writing those, but but they got a lot of attention. Strugnell trying to rip off Ted Hughes, Tr Strugnell being Seamus Heaney or Adrian Henry or whatever, and and Strugnell's obviously a hopeless, blustery male of the kind we all know. Um, Maybe maybe a lesson not to be like that. But um, what made what motivated you to invent Strugnell and to maintain his presence in your first two books? Well, it just started off as a joke. Um, again, DM Thomas was involved in this. Um, we would I was doing we were writing entries for a new statesman competition. I can't remember what it was, um, but we we both made up joke names, and um, mine was um, Jason Strugnell. Um, I think I got Strugnell out of telephone directory and I've always felt guilty about that because there are real people called Strugnell. Um, <laughs> and um, so it just started off as a joke. And then, um, you know, started, uh, Don said you should write some, Strugnell should write some Shakespearean sonnets. And then, you know, I started, uh, yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember what happened after that, but I know then Strugnell wrote quite a lot of poems. And then I was asked to do a radio programme. This was before I published a book. I just published a few poems in magazines. And I was asked to do a radio programme for Radio 3 of Strugnell and his mates. It was a sort of drama documentary of Strugnell and his mates. And it was great fun. Um, I went up to Manchester to be there when they recorded it. Um, and as a result of that, um, Faber were interested in doing a book just of Strugnell. And I actually got as far as having a contract. And I thought, no, <coughs> I'm not going to sign this because if I do a book of just Strugnell, no one's ever going to be interested in my other poems. So I never signed the contract and I just waited. And um, then other things happened. And um, eventually I was able to publish a book that wasn't just Strugnell. You didn't want to be like Steve Coogan only being allowed to be Alan Partridge. You know? Right. Um, the, uh, uh, I like the way you say that Strugnell wrote them, though, not that you wrote them in the voice of Strugnell, as though as though you were really inhabiting that character, like an actor really getting into their role or something. Um, why why did he vanish? Because he vanished after two books. Yeah, I just got bored with him. I just got fed up. Um, that Strugnell poem, the one you mention in the book, the one about the royal wedding yeah. um, of Edward and Sophie that was never published, um, I think... I don't know why it was never published. Maybe the newspaper didn't like it, but I was asked to, to write that um, by a newspaper and um, I don't think it ever got published. Um, but I found it depressing. I mean, it got to the point where people would ask me to write Strugnell poems and I just really didn't want to. I just, yeah. I just had enough of him. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, but he's a great, he was a great vehicle for joshing with a mentality in a a type I suppose um which poets do you return to most and why and and have you had any books that you've returned to during the pandemic or even maybe because of the pandemic um not especially because of the pandemic 
But you know, Houseman is a big favourite of mine. Yeah. Um, and Welsh, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets and John Clare and Emily Dickinson. Um, I should make a list of my favourite poets because then I think, well, those that's that's something to be going. George Herbert, that's oh, yeah, something to be going on with. Herbert, Larkin, someone. I mean, sorry. Course, I mean, Larkin, of course. Yeah. Herb, Herbert's someone you, um, I think, if I remember rightly, you 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 first really came to a little bit later because you edited that anthology, didn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so was was that when you first really discovered Herbert? No, it wasn't. It was I was asked to do it because the series editor knew I liked Herbert. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, th- there's a lot more back to your work. There's a, there's a lot more contentment in in your probably in your third and fifth collections, especially, I think, not that they're contented about everything or anything like that, but the change in tomba, is that how you say that word? The change in tomba between serious concerns and, and if I don't know is pretty distinct, I'd say. Um, why, why do you think that is? Well, it's because I met Lachlan and moved in with him and my life, I mean, my life completely changed because Serious Concerns was all about looking for love and love affairs that went wrong. And then I settled down and I was happy. And um, obviously that made a huge difference. Yeah, um, so, sorry. Also, I mean, when I was writing about all different boyfriends who were not named and, you know, I could be as rude about them as I liked because nobody knew who they were. But once, you know, you settle down with a partner and everyone knows who your partner is, you have to be more careful. I have, there are a few of my poems yeah. where I'm sort of making fun of Lachlan, um, <laughs> which sure. he's been very good about. <laughs> um, especially, as he was, especially as he was a schoolmaster at the time. You know? <laughs> right, yeah, I can see the problem. Um, they're, they're much less urban books as well, it strikes me, in a way. Oh, they well, feel because like I moved they're... out of London. Of course, yeah, to cathedral cities, and one yeah. then another, right? Yeah. Um, one, one of my favourite poems in in that book, in If I Don't Know, is the long one at the end, The Teacher's Tale, which is yeah. a kind of coming-of-age tale about a schoolboy and his problems. Yeah. And it's maybe not as long as The River Girl. I think The River Girl probably gets more attention. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I think it's su- superb. It's a wonderful coming-of-age tale about, about this uh, yeah boy at school and, and, and the, the problems he faces, very working-class child. Would you give us an insight behind that poem? Was it inspired by real events? Because I know you were a teacher, of course. No, well, first of all, it was commissioned for a Chaucer anniversary by the Canterbury Festival. So, um, you know, they wanted to a a poem that was for somebody's tale, like like Canterbury Tales are. Um, But a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it draws on my experience as a teacher and um, the fact that sort of, children who were unhappy in a quiet way tended to get less concern and attention than children who were unhappy in a way that made them a complete pain. And um, yeah. yeah. So he, I mean, I had in mind a couple of boys that I taught who had overbearing parents. Um, and so they would have been thought, you know, some people would have thought they came from good homes because they had two parents, which was actually not, I mean, I don't know what proportion of my pupils had two parents, but it, it certainly wasn't all of them. So they had two parents and they weren't neglected. 
um, um, you know, unlike some of my other pupils who were neglected and didn't have two parents and had dads in prison and all that sort of thing. But, um, two parents, um, but the, you know, there was this very overbearing mother yeah. who made it difficult for them to have a normal childhood. And they were kind of clearly unhappy. And that was the inspiration really for that poem. And of course they, you know, as you know, I had an overbearing mother who, and, you know, I'm very religious and so on. So I identified with those boys because I thought their childhood was a bit like mine. Yeah, it's a very empathetic work. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass to you now. I, re- I, w- I wanted to ask you, actually, maybe I will ask you anyway. Are there, are there any poems of yours that you particularly enjoy reading to live audiences? My favourite poem of my own is Flowers. Um, serious concerns because it is I mean I know it sounds as if the relationship is over but actually it's about Lachlan and it was at a time when I wasn't sure if the relationship had any future but it turned out it did um but I suppose I like reading the ones that make I mean I I I really love reading to this is the awful thing about online you can't you know get any um audience response but I like reading to live audiences. And um, of course, I like reading the ones that make them laugh. Um, <laughs> I, d- I don't know if I can pick on a particular one, but um, yeah. No, there are quite a few. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I love I loved the poem Flowers as well. I remember it being on a, um, on a Poetry Society postcard once when I was in, in the offices of there. It was up on a postcard. Um, about 10, 15 years ago. I'm going to pass to you now, Wendy. Could could we hear right. some of your poems, please? Right. Now we're going to hopefully get them up on the screen. So just a slight pause. I'll try and get the poems on the screen. So great, excellent. Right, now I'm afraid the first two poems, uh, Rory, are two that aren't mentioned in your book because I hadn't written them at the time. Um, but I was asked recently, you know, I, I sort of thought I completely finished writing poems. And then I was asked to write these two poems, one called The Beginning and one called The End. And they were to go in an anthology of short stories. They wanted a poem at the beginning and a poem at the end. And um, these are the, those are the two poems. The Beginning. None of us remembers the beginning the journey through a dark tunnel to air and light, or our time as a helpless baby. When Arva, two and three quarters, is the age I am now, will he record his obsession with vehicles, how he loved to line up his toys into a traffic jam, how the sighting of a real life bus or fire engine was perfect happiness. There he goes on his scooter, faster and faster, hurtling into the future. Yeah, thanks. And this one is the end. Not yet sans everything. Thanks to my glasses, hearing aids, dental implant, walking stick, inhalers, statins, and carefully rationed painkillers, I am glad to be alive as I walk the last mile or two through the valley of the shadow. Oh, yeah. Well, as that one's about death, I thought I'd follow it with this one about my funeral. This is one I enjoy reading. Um, My funeral. I wrote this after I'd been at a funeral where I I got quite annoyed 
and I got home and I wrote this, my funeral. I hope I can trust you friends not to use our relationship as an excuse for an unsolicited ego trip. I have seen enough of them at funerals and they make me cross. At this one, though deceased, I aim to be the boss. If you are asked to talk about me for five minutes, please do not go on for eight. There is a strict timetable at the crematorium and nobody wants to be late. If invited to read a poem, just read the bloody poem. If requested to sing a song, just sing it as suggested and don't say anything. Though I will not be there, glancing pointedly at my watch and fixing the speaker with a malevolent stare, remember that this was how I always reacted when I felt that anybody's speech, sermon or poetry reading was becoming too protracted. Yes, I was impatient and intolerant and not always polite. And if there aren't many people at my funeral, it will serve me right. Right now, this one, um, this is an uncollected poem that is mentioned in, in Rory's book. And um, this is the uh, epigraph at the top, he never lonely cracked a joke, is from a real Times obituary. Um, and I just thought, what a, what a thing to have said about you after you died, he never knowingly cracked a joke. Now, I never tell anybody who this is about. It's not somebody I ever knew, but it was just somebody whose obituary was in the time. Rory worked it out. Rory worked out who it's about. So if you want to know, you have to buy Rory's book, Obit. He was a sober-sided bloke, successful, honest, and admired. He never knowingly cracked a joke. People listened when he spoke, revered the wisdom he'd acquired. He was a sober-sided bloke. Loved by all his women folk and intermittently desired, he never knowingly cracked a joke. He was prudent, never broke, and never close to being fired. He was a sober-sided bloke. Solid as an English oak, highly praised when he retired. He made a speech without a joke. Yesterday, the world awoke to mourn the news that he's expired. This first-rate sober-sided bloke who never knowingly cracked a joke. Right, this one, a little tribute to John Cage. That's John Cage, the avant-garde composer. He had, a, there was a centenary of his birth a few years ago, which is when I wrote this. Um, as well as writing a lot of strange music, he um, wrote some books, which I have, which I find quite exciting. And uh, this quotation at the top is from one of John Cage's books. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. This is the poem. My computer humming while, while triangles dance on the screen. A blackbird singing perched on the garden gate. The soft scratch of my pencil as I write these words. A trio for computer, blackbird and pencil. One continuous sound, one random, one controlled by me. The pencils part is almost over. When it stops, yeah, that is the end of the poem. Um, and this one, 
is about the, well, you can see the title on a photograph of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, this was not long after Justin Welby was appointed. Um, and there was this photograph of him in the papers out jogging along the London pavements in his shorts. And that was why I wrote this poem. You see an archbishop out jogging in shorts. You know it's unfair to have negative thoughts. There's no reason at all why he shouldn't keep fit. It's commendable. You can't help sneering a bit. And thinking of Beckett and Cranmer and Lord and numerous others who may have been flawed, but of whom I believe it is safe to say none ever took off his trousers and went for a run. Of course, things are tough for archbishops today. Nasty photographers snapping away. It's nasty of me to write this, I confess it. I don't think I'm sorry enough to suppress it. A um, couple of years ago, I was at a sort of slightly churchy festival um, where the Archbishop was and somebody insisted on introducing me to him and showing him the poem and my heart sank. But, you know, he was really nice about it. He seemed like a really nice person. I owe it to him to say that. Okay, next poem. Right, now two sonnets. I write a lot of Shakespearean sonnets more and more as time goes on. Um, this one is called An Afternoon. The two of them are sitting on the bed in my small student room, my second year. My parents are both feeling very sad after a funeral not far from here. My mother's closest girlhood friend who died of cancer in her forties. They agree they can't face driving home just yet, decide to come and spend an hour or two with me. And I for once am genuinely pleased to see them. I'm depressed, I haven't said. I hope the hugs and smiles I gave them eased their grief. Years later, when they're dead, I will remember and be moved to say, I never loved them more than on that day. And the next one also goes back. This is one little thing you got wrong, Rory. You thought this was a school reunion, but it was a college reunion. And I think there are certain clues there, like the fact that we'd been together for three years and the mention of gowns and college food. Anyway, this was, um, it was a reunion at my old college. It was 50 years since we'd first gone there. And quite a few of us who knew each other um, arranged to go to this dinner and it was really it was a really lovely evening and I wrote this poem afterwards reunion 50 years have passed since we first met and 47 since we said goodbye embarking on our adult lives and yet you are the same it seems to me am I five decades of life of ups and downs of love and marriage work and motherhood and here we are back in the world of gowns and college food and essays. And it's good, it's very good, my lovely, clever friends, to travel to the past and find you here, to share just one more evening meal that ends in someone's room before we disappear into a future where I'm sad to know it's over. It was over long ago. Right, at Stafford Services. Um, I, I like the work of Alain de Botton, particularly what he, when he writes about travel. And um, I, the quotation at the top, it, it sort of made me 
helped me understand where why I like a certain kind of place that I mean I, I would have been ashamed to admit that I like motorway service areas because everyone thinks it's weird but after reading Alan de Botton I thought it's not weird he would probably like them too all right places of transit where we are aware of a particular kind of alienated poetry in the wimpy bar at Stafford services I ask for ketchup the girl gives me a sachet she seems nice, so I mentioned the red plastic tomatoes that used to be on every table in the old days. She has never heard of them. She thinks ketchup on the tables is a good idea. The red plastic tomatoes, the Formica tables in the Wimpy Bar by Barnhurst Bus Depot, where I went age 13 to smoke, drink coffee and feel sophisticated. It was all so modern, so American, so young and a safe haven from parents. 50 years on, I'm sitting in another one, drinking coffee and not smoking. As the light fades, the glass walls turn into mirrors, lending the place an air of glamour. I like it here. I could be in an Edward Hopper painting, a woman traveling alone on business. No one knows anything about me. Perhaps I'm a high powered executive with a BMW outside in the car park or some kind of artist, a poet maybe, scribbling in her notebook, dreams in a wimpy. I finish my coffee, find my keys and walk out of the picture. This is a very old one. Um, this was commissioned by the Tate Gallery for a book they did in the 1980s. And um, I chose this picture by de Chirico, um, which features a female statue of a female torso and a bunch of bananas. And um, here is the poem. I am a poet. I am very fond of bananas. I am bananas. I am very fond of a poet. I am a poet of bananas. I am very fond. A fond poet of I am, I am, very bananas. Fond of am I bananas, am I, a very poet. Bananas of a poet, am I fond, am I very. Poet bananas, I am, I am fond of a very. I am of very fond bananas, am I a poet. Yeah, that's the end of that one. Thank you. You're doing this, the scrolling's going very well, whoever's doing it. Right, here's the one I mentioned, flowers. Just need a sip of water. Some men never think of it. You did. You'd come along and say you'd nearly brought me flowers, but something had gone wrong. The shop was closed, or you had doubts. The sort that minds like ours dream up incessantly. You thought I might not want your flowers. It made me smile and hug you then. Now I can only smile. But look, the flowers you nearly brought have lasted all this while. Favourite. When they ask me who's your favourite poet, I'd better not mention you though you certainly are my favorite poet. And I like your poems too. 
And um, the next one, I think I know it off by heart because the chat box is obscuring it actually. Could you scroll up a little bit more? Oh, that's great. Another unfortunate choice. I think I am in love with A.E. Houseman, which puts me in a worse than usual fix. No woman ever stood a chance with Houseman and he's been dead since 1936. Loss. The day he moved out was terrible. That evening, she went through hell. His absence wasn't a problem, but the corkscrew had gone as well. The next one, yeah, men talking. I wrote this one, men talking. Um, when I was at a conference in America and I was at a table where all the other people were men. And I wrote this poem after that lunch, Men Talking. Anecdotes and jokes, on and on and on. If you're with several blokes, it's anecdotes and jokes. If you were to die of boredom there and then, they'd notice by and by if you were to die, but it could take a while. They're having so much fun. You neither speak nor smile. It could take a while. And as it's November, and I'm not doing any more readings before Christmas, I hope you'll forgive me for including a couple of Christmas poems. Um, this one, I wrote this way back in the 1980s. At Christmas, little children sing and merry bells jingle. The cold winter air makes our hands and faces tingle and happy families go to church and cheerily they mingle and the whole business is unbelievably dreadful if you're single. People used to say to me, Wendy, it's unbelievably dreadful if you're married as well. And I see how true that is now. And the last one is called Christmas Ornaments. The mice attacked the Holy Family, the one I brought in, bought in Prague, made out of straw. By Christmas, Joseph was an amputee and Mary and the baby were no more. But I have other treasures to display, two perching birds, a Santa Claus, a clown, a rooster from the church in Santa Fe, a little harp and drum, a shoe, a crown, collected in the years I've lived with you, the years of warmth and love and Christmas trees and someone to come home to, someone who can share what I bring back from overseas and sometimes travel with me. Darling, look, our moon from Paris, glittering on its hook. And that's, uh, yeah, that's just over 15 minutes. So that's worked out okay. Thank you, Wendy. That was a, a very enjoyable reading indeed. And mea culpa regarding reunion. Um, my great friend, the poet Andrew Taylor, edited a book called The Poets, what is it? The the poetics of the motorway service station, I think. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and part of me responded to that at the time in my head by thinking, uh, you really can have a book about anything, can't you? Um, so are there lots of poems about motorway service stations then? Well, it seems so, but it's mainly poets writing about them. Um, between the two of you, anyway, you're bringing me round. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to remind people that, 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 that questions for Wendy can be added to the, to the chat at the bottom. and we'll do our best to get through as many of them as we can in a minute. 
and there are a few there already, but first one from me. Um, what, what do you like so much about villanelles? Uh, you've written a lot of them and you still do, Obit, for instance. I just, I just enjoy them. I mean, if I'm reading a book or judging a competition and I come across a villanelle, a well-written one that, that's done properly, I just really enjoy them. And I didn't realise, I mean, I knew Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night long before I realised that it was something called a villanelle. And again, this was on an Arvon course um, where one of the tutors, this was the first one I ever went on, one of the tutors was Douglas Dunn. And he was working with a, there was a young, a schoolboy who'd written a poem that Douglas thought could be a villanelle. And so Douglas was helping this boy to write a villanelle. And I was just intrigued that there was such a thing. And so after that course, I, you know, I tried to write one. And because I got it wrong the first time um, with these, those kind of forms, you think you know how it works and then you realise you've got it wrong. So I had a few goes before I um, got it right. But my first couple of poems to be published in the Times Literary Supplement were both villanelles, the one called Lonely Hearts and the one called Reading Scheme. I just enjoy them. Uh, Lonely Heart, sorry, sorry. Somebody said to me after Making Cocoa was published, somebody said, because there's several villanelles in that book, and somebody said, you've done enough of those now. So I think I don't think there are any in serious concerns. And then I thought this is ridiculous. You know, if you can write 150 sonnets, um, then I don't see why you're only allowed to write five villanelles. So then I started doing them from time to time. Oh yeah, I think if I anyone makes do. a sort of sweeping statement like that, you mustn't do this. It's normally normally means it's quite a good idea to do it. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the l- lonely hearts. Um, I mean, it is true. I think that most villanelles aren't aren't very good, and often um, it can feel like the poet's trying to just sort of insert that line because they have to in certain places. And you really d- don't don't ever fall into that trap at all. And lonely hearts is a a very good example of it. It's so so insistent. And um, uh, what's the one about the um, the the Postman reading scheme, of course. And yeah, that's there's that a villain yeah. as well. Milkman. Yeah, that's right. I and, got um, told off somebody at a reading after a reading told me off about that one because it was unfair to milkmen. Well, then, you know. Well, yeah, but I think the tough. problem more is now that kind of kids nowadays probably don't know what a milkman is. Oh, we still have one. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm good. We do. I'm going to read some of the. Um, some of the the the, the comments people people have sent in, and then move on to some people's questions. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for those wonderful poems, Philip Shelley. Uh, fantastic poems from Penny Plowman. Fantastic reading. I've been laughing out loud. Says Lisa Kelly. Uh, wonderful. Thank you very much, Wendy. Says Rosie Johnson. Stunning. Wonderful poems. Thank you, Wendy, from Mary Mulholland. Um, uh, and so on and so forth. That's really nice because um, you don't. I mean, that really makes, helps to make up for the fact that you can't see or hear the audience when you're doing it. That's right. It's strange, isn't it? But but yeah. people pe- people are are having a, a great time listening to you. Um, I'll move on to some questions from people. Philip Shelley asks, do you write every day? No. <laughs> I mean, at the moment, I, I mean, I've been, for the last two years, I've been writing a diary that I do actually write every day. I haven't missed a single day, but I certainly don't write poems every day. And I never did. And at the moment, I'm not really writing poems at all, except for those two I read at the beginning. You um, did write. I, sorry, sorry, I keep interrupting. No, on, carry yeah. on. Well, you, you did used to write a, a lot more, though, didn't you? I mean, obviously, there were there were 
most of the drafts of your poems are, are, are in the archive, for example, are, are early ones, you know, things that, that never made it into print. It seems like you wrote a lot more. Maybe yeah. were, you, were you, you know, trying to trying to find your way and now you, you realise more when a poem's not working? Is it is it that? Well, it's also that, you know, I was so excited that, I mean, you know, I was in analysis and I was getting in touch with feelings I didn't know I had. And it was kind of exciting. I was excited about the whole business. And so it all came sort of gushing out. But um, inevitably, um, it got it got slower. Um, and also that um, I think I can, I got better at recognising what was a viable idea for a poem and what wasn't. Yeah, I remember hearing Don Patterson say that, that uh, he just got better at realising where he was going wrong and um, mm. stopping earlier with a poem that wasn't working. Yeah. Um, I'll move on to other questions. Vanessa Raison says, how would you situate your poetry in an academic context? Um, I suppose I'd extend that to ask which which poetic contemporaries of yours have influenced you most or or do you consider close to you as poets in some way, not just as people? Um, Kit Wright, who's still alive. I mean, Gavin Ewart and Larkin, who are both dead. Um, Sophie Hanna, of the younger generation, who, I mean, was very influenced by me early, but she very much her own person now, her own person, ridiculous ridiculous um, expression but um <laughs> so yes I'm now drawing a blank there must be others um I mean I can certainly see the connection with Gavin Ewart and um, yes glad you well, mentioned he was a him. sort of mentor I mean he was very 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 encouraging very good to me but also that I think I've, I've said this before but the two the two living poets that I actually look at most often are Flora Adcock and Hugo Williams I think they're both absolutely wonderful yeah me too me too um uh, one one connection with Gavin Gavin Ewart in in a in a way is, uh, or at least your earlier work, particularly in Gavin Ewart, is and throughout the the tendency to be witty without um, being light, um, to to not think that something can be funny without also being not funny at all, um, but also um, parody. And of course, he he wrote a lot of what he didn't call parodies; he called them para poems, and even wrote in very very pleasantly to a magazine once to say he hadn't been parodying Larkin, I think it was, the Larkin automatic car wash is his para poem of the Whitson Weddings. He hadn't been parodying at all. He'd been using Larkin's poem as a frame for his own and it was very serious and had no yeah. parodic intent. But even so, that that engagement with other writers in that way is something that reminds me a little bit of what you have often yeah. done as well. And Gavin always insisted that you didn't have to be solemn I mean, that you could be writing about something that was serious, that was important or deeply felt, but you didn't have to be solemn and pompous about it. I mean, that was, he was great in that respect. He didn't like pretension and pomposity any more than I do. So um, we had a lot in common in that respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll move on to a few more questions, actually, a few more comments. It's been such a pleasure, says Sarah Doyle, and so rewarding to hear two writers in conversation Wonderful to hear Wendy read her poems. I've laughed out loud several times. And Ruth Higgins says, thank you. Best 15 minutes hearing you read. Remembering the feeling when I first read those early ones. Um, Can I just stop you a minute? I did just spot in the chat 
room um a question where is your pandemic poem in print oh that's just popped up yeah yeah um that was that was one i read on friday um have i showed you that one Rory? no <laughs> no you uh, haven't. well it's um it's um a, 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 a sort of villanelle aimed at the prime minister and all the things <laughs> they got wrong and what happened was i sent it to the times and they weren't interested and they said perhaps the guardian would publish it but i didn't want to publish it in the guardian so I haven't done anything with it. And then I started to think perhaps it was a bit dated. So it, hasn't, it doesn't appear in print anywhere is the answer. Right, next question. It's great. And the, the Guardian's where you'd sort of expect it. So it seems a bit yeah. too, too obvious. I'm not yeah. keen on the Guardian. I'm not very keen on the Guardian anymore either. Um, but anyway, um, generally. Uh, Lisa Kelly, a superb poet, very nice human, asks this. Wendy said she thought she had given up poetry and until the commission for beginning and ends for the anthology. What spurred that feeling of giving up? I just couldn't be bothered to try anymore. Um, I, think, I think actually it's partly the current climate where nobody dares say what they think. I think it's partly to do with woke culture and thinking, you know, who's interested in what an old white middle-class Oxford graduate has got to say. So it's partly that. Um, and partly just that I actually think I've said most of what I have to say. You know, I've, read, I've written about love and death and I'm not sure I've got anything new to say about them, but if I had something new to say, I might write a poem. Yeah, I think, I think that's, um, I'm glad you are still writing poems. Um, and I think some of what you said there's quite sad because, um, uh, you you got my interest because you riled the establishment and the ascendant way of things. Um, yeah, and, but and you know, I mean, the situation the situation now is. Um, I mean, I think I'm a coward. I think a lot of us are coward cowards that you don't dare challenge woke culture um, for fear of what will happen to you. Well, you might have answered this inadvertently, but Philip Shelley says, will the diary be published? Um, I don't think so. I mean, when I started writing it, it was inspired by a book called Diary of a Bookseller by Sean Bissell. I don't know if you've come across that. I really enjoyed it. And um, he runs a bookshop up somewhere near the borders in Scotland. And it was about his working life and who came into the bookshop and the things that happened and how much money he took every day. And I sort of had this, and I really enjoyed it. And I had this idea, I'd write a diary about my working life. I thought that might be interesting, you know, the places I went to and readings, things that happened at readings. And um, also how much money I made, because I think it's quite a good idea for people to see how little money poets made. Well, I started writing this in November 2019, but of course my working life pretty much disappeared because the pandemic came and all my readings were cancelled. <clears throat> and so, I mean, it's partly about my working life. Um, all, any article I got asked to write in the intervening time is in the diary. So there's that. But, um, you know, a lot of the things I, I just, and there, is, there was a publisher who was interested. She hadn't seen it, but she was, the publisher who published my prose book was interested. But I came to feel it was really, it's really too boring. And the trouble is if you're, I mean, I'm still sort of, I'm still writing it as if perhaps it might be published, but the trouble with that is you can't be nasty about anybody. 
because they might be going to read it. So you can't really be honest if you're writing for publication. So, you know, there's a there's a person I, I have for reasons I have to see regularly who I don't like very much, but I can't say that because, you know, so, I mean, it, it's difficult. If, um, it's difficult to be honest if you're seeing people who are alive and might read the book. We've, we've, we've got a number of questions still to go. I'm going to have to call time on the questions and just, just go for the ones we've, we've got. Sorry about that if anyone was... If you're mid-typing, I'll, I'll give it 20 seconds, Grace. But um, uh, Julia asks, um, have you any not-to-do tips when entering competitions, please? I mean, you've obviously won many. Me? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, poem competitions, you know. I've judged a lot of them. Into... I don't think I've okay. won many. You um, did early on, didn't you? You, you, you a lot no, of... okay. no. Um, spectator competitions? Oh, spectator and no statesman yeah. competitions. And one time a, a, a competition for a poem for children. Um, yes, well, I think that um, don't do what Strugnall does in God and the Jolly Board Bogmouse, which is to try and imitate, you know, that poem, he tries to imitate the styles of all four judges. And sometimes when I've judged competitions, I've read poems that seem to me like poor imitations of me, and that doesn't go down very well. So I would suggest that don't enter something that's an imitation of the judges. Um, what else can I say? Um, what, what, what help, what, I mean, you know, I just looking for poems that work. Um, I don't think there's any, if you go, well, I mean, if, you're, if I'm a judge and you're going to put in a poem in a traditional form, get it right. I mean, I say, I'm glad to see a villanelle, but half the villanelles I see, the, 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 the meter's all wrong. So if you're going to use a traditional form, make sure you get it right, especially if it's being judged by someone like me who writes in traditional forms. Um, yeah, but I don't, um, you know, if I'm a judge, the, the, the brilliant poems don't have to rhyme. They just have to be good. When you aren't writing poems, says Robert Hamburger, whose name makes me hungry. When you aren't writing poems, do you miss the process or are you content to wait for poems to arrive? I do miss it a bit. I mean, if I'm working on a poem and I think it's going well, it is a very good feeling. It's a very good feeling. But I also decided it's not a tragedy if I don't write anymore. And I get, I'm not very keen on writers talking about writer's block. I mean, you know, writer's block is, you know, lots of people don't write. so. You know, if you're not writing, it's not a, not a tragedy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a very good feeling. Um, if you've got a poem on the go and you think it's going well, it's a very good feeling. Um, I just don't have a lot of ideas these days. You know, when that commission came up, the, the, I liked I, I liked it. So, you know, I wrote the poems, but then I didn't write any more after that. It is a very good feeling, and and it you remind me of Philip Larkin saying that it's like laying an egg, which actually strikes me as something that would cause me to have a very bad feeling, but probably because I don't have a cloaca <laughs> or whatever. It is. Um, but but I, I I know what he means, um, and I know what you mean. Um, uh, Vanessa Raison asks um, very very heavy poetic question: This, do you play that piano? Yeah. 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 Um, I haven't played a lot lately, but yes, I do. I do play it. 
I learned at school. Thea Smiley asks, um, have you ever considered writing a play or a novel? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I've considered it. Um, I've considered writing a novel, but I, don't, I just don't seem to be able to, to do it. And, you know, having written fiction in verse, I mean, The Teacher's Tale, which you referred to, and The River Girl, and I think, well, you know, it ought to be a lot easier to do this in prose and not have to think of rhymes and everything. Um, but I don't seem to be able to, and I think what it comes down to, and I still haven't given up hope that I might write some prose fiction one day, but I don't think I'm very interested in making things up. I think, you know, I like Heaney's expression, the music of what happens. I think what interests me is the music of what happens. And I'm not terribly interested in making things up. I read novels. So I don't think they're pointless, but I don't think, just don't think I can get excited about that. You have to be seized by an idea for a novel, and I never have been seized by an idea for a novel. And a play, well, The River Girl was written for, for, for the theatre. I mean, it was written for a puppet theatre. Um, but it isn't actually a play. It's a narrative poem that can be acted out. Not so keen on the theatre. I don't know that I'd want to um, write a play. Um, Kingsley Amos once said to me, oh, you don't want to write plays, you have to deal, you don't want to deal with actors, he said. <laughs> well, I, I know a, a very good friend of mine's a superb screenwriter and he, uh, he he's also a control freak with his work, which is, seems, seems incompatible really, because you have to give so much of that control to other people who haven't written it. Well, actually, I don't, we've got the time for this, but one of the very first things I wrote um, was when I was 11 at boarding school and every dormitory had to provide some entertainment for the house. And I wrote a play, which was a funny play about life in, you know, sort of, there was a character based on the matron. So it was, it was, it was a great success, but I wrote the play and then I started trying to direct it. And I got much too bossy and authoritarian and people wouldn't do what I said. And I freaked out and sort of stormed off. And so the bossiest girl in the dormitory took over as director and she directed my play and it was a huge success. But <laughs> I think that relates to what you just said about your friend. <laughs> there we go, there we go. Um, I'll, 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 before we, uh, hopefully you'll be able to read one more poem for us, Wendy. I don't know if oh you've got one in. Um, no pressure, um, you, well, you, you don't have to. But uh, I'll just end with um, some of the comments that people have said. Um, uh, so yeah, Robert Hamburger, thank you for a fascinating reading and interview. Lisa Kelly, thank you, Wendy, for your reading and for responding to the questions with such frankness. Thank and, you. And thanking me for my brilliant interview style. More of that, please, Lisa. Um, very sharp and entertaining. <laughs> thank, thank you, Lisa. Um, Fakina McDonald says, thank you both. I found it very interesting to listen to your exchange. Enjoyed hearing the poems, Wendy, and I appreciate your honesty. Um, Anne Fellows, thank, thank you. you. But Anand Fellow says, thank you both Wendy and Rory for, your in for an interesting session, especially to listen in on your conversation. A privilege to hear you read your poems, Wendy. Chrissy Gittins, thank you so much for your reading and talk, Wendy. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I made your poems part of my teaching at Belmarsh Prison and they were much appreciated. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and Chaucer Cameron, I'm absolutely thrilled to hear your work. Um, and you're so grateful for all you have said. Thank you so much. Two more. Susan Watson, thank you. There are loads more, but I'll just read two more. Thank you, Wendy, not only for your reading today, but for making Coco for Kingsley Amos. My husband's bought it for me when it came out, and it was one of the collections that made me begin to think about reading contemporary poetry. 
this was 20 years before my first literary life-changing poetry school course, but you helped to plant one of the very first tiny seeds. And Alison Shepherd, a deep pleasure to listen to the conversation and to hear Wendy's engrossing reading. Thank you to you both, to Poetry in Aldborough and to the appreciative audience. Oh, Alison Brackenbury, that is. Thank you, Alison. Oh, hello, Alison. And, Hi. And I'd echo that. Thank you to Poetry Aldborough and the appreciative audience. And thank you to you, Wendy. Our time's pretty much up. Um, so I think we better end here, and, unless you are happy to read yes, one. I'm fine. I'm fine to end here, yes. Thank unless you very you much for those comments, everybody. And Rory, thank you for reading them to me, because it does make it a bit more rewarding than the usual online reading. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, so okay, we'll end there. And um, thank, thank you, Alborough, for having the event. Alborough is a very important festival to poetry in this country. And good night from me. And thank you, Wendy. And I'll pass back now to you, Susanna. Thank you so much, uh, Rory and Wendy. I, I, I mean, I echo all the comments in the chat, of course. That's been an absolutely fascinating um, interview and it's been wonderful to hear the poems. So really, really thank you so much. And thanks everybody for coming and for the, all the great questions and for the lovely comments in the chat. Um, please do check out the work of the Festival Artist in Residence, Arjuna Gunarathna, who's responding to every reading. Um, and also just, a, you know, just before we wrap up, um, I, I guess many of you know that Poetry in Albright is entirely a voluntary organisation run entirely by volunteers. So if you've enjoyed this reading, this, this session, anything else that you've come to, if you feel you would like to donate something to the festival, you can find the bank details on the festival's website. Um, and just before I wrap up, just to say our final event's coming up at seven. So it's going to be the end of a wonderful festival. And it promises to be a really inspiring reading by four Irish poets, Sean Hewitt, Prashin Kelly, Victoria Kenefic and Aoife Lyle. So if you are still in the mood for more poetry, please do join us for that. And thanks so much, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Rory. Thank you.